Hey, welcome to the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mahenna. Today we have another episode of Movie Night, and we are joined by writer-director Monia Ha'il, who is the writer and director of the award-winning film Costa Brava, Lebanon. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, welcome to another episode of Movie Night. Uh, we are very honored to have our special guest. Monia Ha'il is a director and writer from Lebanon. She holds a bachelor's degree in architecture from Alba, Beirut, and an MFA in directing from Columbia University in New York, and is a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Her first feature film, Costa Brava, Lebanon, premiered in 2021 at the Venice Film Festival, Toronto International Film Festival, and BFI London Film Festival, amongst others. That's what we're talking about today. Some of her her other previous work include fiction film, Submarine 16, uh, 69th Cannes Film Festival, as well as many others. We are excited to have her here. Uh, Munia, welcome to Afikra and thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm very happy we're doing this. I also am very happy that we're doing this. Um, so let's, I guess, uh, give a little context. So today's conversation is going to be primarily about Costa Brava, um, but in order to understand your perspective and how you approach the film, I think it makes sense to start with talking a little bit about um, basically your childhood and your relationship to filmmaking as a kid and your relationship to films as a kid and your relationship to Lebanon as a kid. Um, (laughs) This is my sister on the left and me on the right. Uh, great stylistic choice, fashion choices. Um, I think um, I think it's probably home that I uh, developed my love for filmmaking because, first of all, everyone in my family really, uh, you know, you they're very complex characters, like all the characters in our lives. But I think that this is where I started becoming interested in characters and the idea of writing complex uh, human beings because the people I love the most are also people who don't always behave like you're supposed to uh, behave, but sometimes, so I think I understood the complexity of of human nature by observing the people I love the most react to crisis and crisis we had a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Like what, what crisis? (laughs) It's like Lebanon is like a video game. Like how can you react to this event and on this event? And I think whether it was for, um, anger or humor or poetry. I, I learned a lot from that household uh, because um, it was full of uh, imagination and poetry and electricity. And, and I think that uh, my offer cinema also came from my parents who really loved cinema and, and introduced me to the world through those films because we watched international cinema. So it was a way for me to discover stories that had nothing to do with mine, but that felt so similar. Yeah. And, um, and also at home, we played a lot. Like, for example, my uncle, uh, Walid, who was a pianist, uh, used to be obsessed with filmmaking. So there's so many videos at home. We have like uh, Super 8 films where they were just getting costumes, my father and my uncle, when they were kids and just create scenarios and, and stories and just film them. And when I discovered them, I thought, they're really great storytellers. And also they're really, uh, I, I think that it 
playing with images, with music, with art is something that I was born in. My father's an architect, my mother as well, my sisters as well. My uncle's a pianist, my aunt's a painter. And so in many ways, creativity, which is a force that guides you, was really part of, of my life. And cinema just came naturally from my parents' love for cinema and from the fact that they felt like characters most yeah. of the time. This this photo, I love this photo because um, one, the fashion choices, but two, also this the it looks deceptively or um, uh, un, uh, unmistakably like the set of Costa Bravo. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, but one of the themes that you know um, that I feel like your your films tackle are how beautiful and broken Lebanon is. And and how both simultaneously are there. It's they. It is both of those things constantly. It's both beautiful and painful, and and sometimes it almost feels like inextricably uh, that those two things are inextricably linked. And if anyone hasn't watched your TED talk um, recently, you mentioned this poem on joy and sorrow, a Khalid Gibran poem that talks about that that sort of. Um, that friction. Um, do you do you feel that way? Um, have you ever not felt that way about Lebanon? Have you ever felt one single feeling? Um, um, I think I, I've become. I think this contradiction has defined me and so many probably Lebanese people because, and and I love this poem so much. Um, yeah, the self-well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And the fact that those two feed each other and the fact that so many of my um, most uh, powerful experiences emerge after some the darkest moments and these two feed each other. But also in Lebanon, those two coincide constantly within the same second sometimes you know like uh, in one moment you're you're in the biggest celebration the next moment you're you're wondering if you want to be alive because the the, the you're constantly on the edge you don't know what's going to happen the next minute and and so it creates a collision between those emotions and i think it it really defines my relationship to the country it's a place that really is responsible for my most beautiful magical memories, but also the reason why the, uh, I felt so broken uh, so often and probably we will always be. I think those two feed each other and, and they define a little bit, I think my nature as a person, but I've accepted that and, and I embrace it and, and um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I was, during during 2019, the end of 2019, um, October 17th, you know the protests started in 2019, um, and you made a, a film during that time uh, called "The Lebanon I Dream of" um, that you can find on Vimeo, um, where you interview all these folks on the ground, whether the protesters or people who are like Adib Dada, who are doing work to to build the Lebanon that they're dreaming of. Um, what were your emotions during, during October and November? Um, because I had a roller coaster of emotions. I had this crazy, crazy cocktail of sorrow and hope. Um, how did you feel about that 
time about Lebanon where, you know, what was happening at the time? Yes. Um, the idea came from Rolly Deep with, with Sharia and I did the film with Malik Hosni. Uh, and um, I would say it's funny. I, I look at those images. I feel like another person than me made them. But again, and that's part of, of life. It, it, it's still me. But I think what happened it's the cocktail of emotions. It started with seeing our favorite landscapes burn a few days before, and then the revolution started after a few events. And there was this feeling of pure euphoria, I think, in the beginning for me. This feeling like this utopia that is an unrealistic objective. Suddenly, those echoes to this idea of utopia, you started feeling them in a very visceral way. And when I was in the revolution, I felt suddenly we went from the individual to the collective and there was this human synergy that was so, I felt high, you know, it was really, really so um, powerful. And then of course, like a, a year later uh, or a little bit more, the explosion, the economic collapse, everything that followed, I think that we just felt from really high. And and I think that I went back and forth between the confusion of how could could we, there was this feeling that was so powerful. We had the we had this illusion, maybe I don't know, like this feeling, like anything we want could be made possible because we were all together. And then later, the pain with everything that happened was so big that I went from I went to a moment of real disillusionment, of real pain. But I never really, really lost hope that one day, even if that that day is much farther than I thought uh, would come. But I think that it was a cocktail of emotions. And when I look at this film, I remember that moment of euphoria, which right now is really digged very, very deep um, because the last year has been so painful and difficult. And now with the elections, there's this like energy that's boiling again. Um, and we'll see where it goes. But I think these have to coexist. Um, yeah. They so feed each other. What were you working on at the time? Were you working on Submarine at the time? No, actually, the Lebanon I dream of was just my way of understanding and processing this revolution yeah. that felt overwhelming. Yeah. So the way we did it with Malik is we said, let's just go have conversations with people because we, we were like melting in each other, everyone. And so I was just asking people why they're on the streets. And then we just made this, you know, together. It was our way of kind of like questioning our, our emotions and our status quo and, and this revolution. And yeah. I was not actually, I made Submarine a few years before. I made Submarine during the garbage crisis in 2016. Again, you made me realize that it was also triggered by uh, that, that movement, yeah. which was you staying, the garbage crisis, which again was a, <laughs> makes you realize how things really no, cyclical. So, um, but uh, during August 4th, and uh, trigger warning for anyone who's watching their uh, scenes right after the explosion, um, during August 4th, you were working on Costa Brava. I was in Abut Productions in Jemeze with the team of the film. We had just greenlit the shoot, and we were in the middle of a creative meeting, which ironically was in two parts. The first part was uh, um, Eros, uh, was reading to me the translation he had done of the a Hala Alian poem that was adapted to Lebanon. And it was a love declaration to Beirut. That's what happened around 4 p.m. 
And then from five to uh, six, we were with uh, Larry and Joe and Miriam discussing the, and Mike discussing the green shoot we wanted to do on Costa Brava to practice what we preach and try to think of how we can create an ecological shoot for the first time in the Middle East and created a protocol. These were the two things we were doing right before the city blew up and, and everything was destroyed. And, and the irony of that is, and of course, we thought like many people that that blast was just a little like a big thing next to where we were. And then when we exited the office, which didn't exist anymore, we saw our whole city uh, uh, destroyed. Yeah. And, and it's a feeling that I think I'm still processing until now. Yeah, six or seven. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit um, about, um, maybe let's talk about uh, submarine before we get into Costa Brava, because as you mentioned, uh, it came out in 2019, but you, you were uh, working on it in 2016, I believe. Um, it came out bef- like around 2016, 17. Okay. Interesting. So IMDb is wrong about that. So let's watch the, let's watch the, the, um, the trailer yes. for and, submarine. And Joe Saade, the cinematographer is in the chat. He shot this and Costa Brava. Okay, amazing. Um, So it's a short, you can find it online. Let's watch the trailer. And then the, it's in some ways, there's so much connective tissue to Costa Brava, so. funny Monia looking at you I feel like I see you sort of like descending into yourself watching this <laughs> this is Yumna Marwan by the way it's so funny yeah. because everyone thought I was her and she was me so when I Stop. did Q&As without her people were like oh so you act and direct <laughs> no it's not me <laughs> but yeah she was also in Costa Brava and she was my muse and I and I feel like uh she I love the energy that comes out of her because I feel like Yumna and the way she moves and, and looks and behaves really embodies that perfect contrast that we're talking about between hope and despair, love yeah. and melancholy. And Yeah. How do you feel watching this now? Because I feel like there was like a whole di- a whole monologue happening. <laughs> <laughs> totally. you know, that wow. if, we if we weren't recording we would next time i turn off my camera <laughs> actually i was thinking when we made submarine it was a dystopian it was a sci-fi movie now it feels 
oh, they're wearing masks, that's so now. But when I, I made a movie in 2016, it was a genre film. It was a movie where epidemics and pandemics have ravaged the place, where the garbage crisis was not solved. The country was drowning in an ecological, economical, and political disaster. And so I created with Isa and Dil and Hanadi Midlej and Tara Sahi and Joe and the whole team, a world that was dystopian, where everything was unrealistically collapsed and everyone was wearing masks. And, and it was a movie happening in the dystopian future as Costa Brava was initially. So when I look at it now, it just feels like a movie from today and, and it makes me not want to write dystopias anymore. Oh, wow. It's just sad to see that the place you love the most has is starting to feel like a dystopia you had imagined to kind of like imagine your darkest fears. Actually, Costa Brava is no longer a movie set in the future because reality caught up with us. So we adapted by just removing that thing in the beginning which said yeah. Lebanon 2030 well I mean it's I was having a conversation with Adib actually Adib Dada right I was having a conversation with him like a month ago and the and the idea was like you know welcome to Lebanon welcome to the future which is like and this is why Costa Bravo was so heavy for me to watch because it was like oh my god um, not only is this Lebanon's present, but this is probably the world's future. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about the film. Um, so you started writing it in um, you know in, in 2019. You started uh, actually kicking off the project. Um, let's talk a little bit. Maybe maybe we watch, we watch the two scenes, uh, and that will give a little flavor for the film. And we get to meet Reem and Tala and go from there, is that okay? Absolutely. Okay, so let's watch the first scene. This is, uh, this, let's watch the scene with Reem, who you describe as the protagonist of the film. Okay, that's the first scene that we're going to watch. Now we're going to watch a scene with Tala, the other daughter number two, or daughter number one, maybe the eldest daughter.
ردي ريم خلصي اكلاتك خلصي صحيح ما عندها من برا It's so heavy. It's so intense. It's so beautifully shot, and um, the performances are incredible. Um, so, looking back at this now, um, I, th maybe there's a stupid question, but do you watch this and think, uh, watch it, sort of uh, paying attention to emotion, or are you sort of nitpicking, um, like a uh, <laughs> like the creator thinking? Oh, Allah, that was wrong, and I wish I could do that again. And this was, or can you actually like see the forest, uh, see the forest for the trees? I think most, of, um, you know me too well. I think those scenes in particular, because I've I've chosen them and and they're there. I I'm able to feel emotionally, but it's not um, the experience I have all the time. I think whenever I watch something I have done there's always a moment where you let go and you accept but I think with Costa Brava the whole process was very uh, specific in terms of shooting in this state after the explosion rushing there was a lot of you know and so I think I, I the process was less organic than with other projects so it took me longer to let go so when I did the festival tour and I was watching it uh, um, sometimes with audiences some of course sometimes I, my producers told me stop watching the film because you keep wanting to re-edit every time so yes of course I'm very nitpicky I'm very self-critical but I also am very proud of the film of, of, of the people I made it with and, and I think that it's a film that comes from you know my heart and and I have to accept that the, the way I did it was the way I had to do it and it's part of my journey but of course I cringe sometimes when I watch previous work but I think I will always be like that so let's talk a little bit about the premise of uh, of the thing so it takes place in some future version of Lebanon um, which not is anymore maybe not, maybe not so future maybe I think like, now it's a period film it's a 2017 movie because yeah. now you couldn't even afford to to isolate sadness has become you know a part of of, of everything inside your walls and in your, in your heart and i think this utopia that they've created in this film is pretty hard to achieve today um it's the story of a family that retracts from society from a city that you know broke their hearts and their bones and 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 tried to create this um disconnect from the world this utopia away from everything and you understand that it, it's not like they're farmers who have lived like that all their life in harmony with nature they're city people who made this choice of of being integrated with nature but it's a choice that was mostly uh triggered by the father who is driven by fear because of his trauma and uh so what happens throughout the film is that the arrival of this garbage landfill, illegal garbage landfill, um, becomes like this trigger that makes every character in this family realize that they haven't been as happy as they thought in this in this exile, because what uh, we thought was a paradise is actually an open air prison where those different family members are not purely themselves. And so that's what I tried to explore throughout the film, this friction between this outside invasion and what it triggers in the family. And each member of this family reacts to that invasion in a very different way. 
Yeah, which captures like what it feels like to be in Beirut, right? For the, at least for the last five years of like, I can't breathe. I can't, I can't go anywhere. Um, so in one, I heard you describe Reem, the, the young, uh, the youngest daughter who's played by two different twins. Um, I heard you describe her character as being the protagonist of the film. Um, say a little more about that. Cause that's not actually what I would have just, I would have said. Mm. Um, and so I was surprised to hear you say that. I think it's a multi-protagonist film, but Reem carries the main mission. She's this young girl who, who has seen only the world her family or her father has created for her. Uh, she doesn't know the life outside this fence. She was born in this land and thinks she has superpowers. And she's just like a Mowgli from Jungle Book, completely in yeah. touch with nature. But her freedom is fake because it, lacks the knowledge that that she needs to really be free because reality has been created for her but she needs to discover the world for herself so i would say that dream who's played by sayana and jayana uh Rustum, represents this force that that wants to protect her family and and in the process of that realizes that what she needed what she wanted was not what she needed as a person and i think that um Yes, I agree with you. She's not the protagonist, but having this kid character allowed me also to project a lot of the emotions that as adult people we repress, you know, a kid confronts you to your most like visceral desires and being around those twins and how they deal with life, I think helped a lot of us adults on set broken and grieving also after the explosion to get in touch with those feelings that are hidden behind all of our guards because they just behave in a way that is has no filter and actually those girls were the magic on set they were the source of wonder and I think that's what she is throughout the film she's this character that wants to protect her father's kingdom and thinks she with her OCD she can control everything but in the end realizes that maybe she shouldn't live a life where her whole objective is to please her father and maybe she should go discover this city that she doesn't know and see how she could be part of it yeah it's it's like she's like She's like the Thawar. <laughs> yes. You know, she's like so responsible, so engaged. Um, responsible, I don't mean responsible in, in terms of, you know, like uh, uh, buttoning up your shirt. I mean responsible. Yes. And she's taking everything so seriously. She's yes. so serious about the, uh, the septic tank and she's so serious about everything. Um, but is, but she's angry. Yes. She's so, think, you know, go ahead. No, no, yeah, yeah. She's full of anger and she's full of fear. I think, I think people ask me, who do you see yourself in, in the characters? Obviously, I see myself in all of them and I've been through all these phases. When I was shooting, I was Walid in a sense that I was driven by fear after the explosion. That was the main emotion that was driving me this desire to control everything. Even walking down the stairs was a different experience for me. Reem, I think, like many people from my generation, and I, I'm not speaking for others, but I guess for myself, I was born the, the year the Civil War ended and in, in a hospital hallway uh, uh, because we had to be away from the windows. So I didn't experience the war, but I was in my mother's belly when, when it was happening. 
And I think that I inherited a lot of the things that they didn't speak to me a lot in terms of their fear, in terms of their anger, in terms of the loss, but also all the beauty because I also have heard so many stories about that excuse really bringing them together in ways that the family was never, etc. Not, not, I'm not at all. Like, I mean, it was mostly horrible, but I'm saying on a personal level. And I think that, that on the day of the explosion, many of us understood everything that we were carrying from our ancestors and uh, our parents and also our ancestors. And I think Irim's OCD, her anxiety, her anger, her love for this place, she's inherited without realizing. And, 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 and her journey in this film is about thinking about what she wants to bring forward also. Yeah. What, like what version of her life she's authoring? Yes. Yeah. Um, so on screen, for those who can't see the screen, there are uh, the three female leads of the of the film, uh, the mother and the two daughters, um, who have this beautiful, interesting triangulation uh, through the film. Um, and then there, there's the grandmother, and then there's the aunt. Um, and there's this interesting character um, of these of these women characters that are very much the driving force of the, of the film. Um, talk to me a little bit about that intergenerational, um, uh, the, the, what's going on uh, by having this intergenerational uh, characters, as well as the aunt who is really, really different, um, but is also multifaceted and is not just a, um, a straw man. Yes, and the, um, the aunt is played by Yumna from Submarine also. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, so the three women that we see on screen are the mother, played by Nadine uh, Labake. Uh, uh, this is Rim, played by, in this photo, it's Zeana Reston, uh, and Tala, played by Nadia Sherbel. And I think each of these characters experiences this invasion differently, because for Tala, who's a teenager who whose whole life is about pleasing others and she's internal and she's she she doesn't use words a lot because I think she haven't really found her place in this home where her little sister is the, the queen. What the arrival of the garbage is for her is the arrival of the outside world. The garbage for her is the objects that represent the society she's been away from and the men uh, uh, that, and it's about her. I think what Tala needed is a place in which she could be free, in which she could explore her sexuality, her emotions. And this is why this arrival does to her. It also brings her close to her mother's past because Nadine, and I'll move to Nadine, uh, is a character, so Sudeya is a character that has put her career as a singer and activist on hold to live this exile as a mother and as a wife. And um, in the beginning, a little bit out of conviction because of the disillusionment that she experienced in the city, but then realizes that what this isolation did to her is give gave her perspective that she doesn't want to live isolated and in this place of privilege, but wants to integrate. And Rim represents this, this, you know, the pure product of her father's utopia, this girl who's been, you know, who, who thinks that Beirut might explode at any moment, but she has never been in, in an explosion and who basically feels like her responsibility is to make sure that her sister and her mother don't succumb to the outside world because she's, you know, represents her father. Alia, played by Yumna, 
is the sister who's an expat in Colombia, the country, uh, obviously. And um, basically um, is one of those characters that is, you know, so in love with Lebanon, but ha has abandoned it because it was source of too much pain and chose to live a life with less dignity outside than, than there. And um, the way Walid describes her to his wife, he, he, when Suraya suggests going back to the city or leaving, he says, yeah, go with my sister to Colombia and then Khabrina social media, Adidemic Lebanon. So that's the conflict between the father and yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the grandmother represents um, that part of this generation, which is she's this grandmother who's lived her life as a mother. So she sacrificed all her passions and whole, all her dreams to be a wife and a mother. And, and now she's this woman who feels, and she's played by Lilian Khoury, who's never acted before. She's the mother of a friend. Unbelievable performance. Yes, yes. And she represents this woman who feels like she hasn't lived life because she's lived it in self-sacrifice for others. And what happens for her when the garbage arrives is similar to the teenager and she becomes the confidant of the teenager. So all these women, I think, represents not different generations only, but also different phases of, of, of growing as a woman. And I also feel Walid represents that as well. Um, and so I tried to explore through these different characters not only the people that have surrounded me and, and the research I've done, but also the different phases of our relationship to Lebanon that goes from hate to love, to confusion, to disillusionment, to anger, that anger that with, without which nothing will change. I think if we're not angry, nothing will change. You know, we've understood that. The, the relationship between Tala and um, the... And the construction, the Mendes, the uh, yes, engineer, played by Francois, is so compelling. It's just this um, really. Um, I don't have a photo. I don't have a photo of Todd, sadly. Um, but um, it's this really compelling um, and complicated relationship. Um, what are you? What were you sort of hoping that people take away? Yeah, there you go. That's him. <laughs> That's him. Although he has a he has a curly hair and his um uh, curly he hair. He was just with me in Barcelona for the promotion of the movie there. So yeah, what were you hoping people take away from the the complexity and the layered you know the the number of layers between what he does um, in relationship to to the character of Tada. It's funny because when I met Francois, who also is not an actor, professional actor, he, he was a, he's an environmental activist. Um, and so it was interesting for him to play that character. <laughs> I think he in particular represents, I think, a person who thought that, that they were part of something clean and then slowly um, realized it was something corrupt and then became corrupt as well in the process. Uh, the other characters that work in the landfill know from the start and they are the invaders and they are the antagonists and he is as well. And they're people who are, uh, that garbage landfill represents just another way of, of killing the, the people, you know? But him in particular, I was filming through the perspective of Tala. So it was important for me to have a very nuanced perspective and character because apart from being this corrupt invader, he's also 
the source of interest of this girl who doesn't know the different, she doesn't have a moral compass because, you know, she doesn't have the tools to engage in society because she's been so isolated from it. And I kept speaking with Francois about the importance of him not playing the asshole and not hating on his character and to remember that he's a human being. And, and, and in terms of what she sees in him, I think we try to focus on her, on what he represents for her. And he represents for her this bridge to the world, this, this um, link to freedom. And also she's a girl who, for her sexual desire is, is related to shame. And so suddenly what happens is that she gets in touch with that desire and the fire, which is the destruction of this land for her becomes her inner, you know, explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not explosion, but her inner, you know, flame. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he did a really good job and, and your direction was obviously incredibly effective in, in so far as like not being this antagonist and almost being the most naive one there, you know? Yes, absolutely. And because in the end, uh, yeah, yes, I agree. And so, he, I think he did a really great job because he was this character that was so hard to hate. And that was the way, that's why it was important to put put to put us in the perspective of Tala with the experience of this character. And he played it really intelligently because in the end, every human being has its own complexities. And he didn't just play the antagonist, he played the human being. Yeah. So um, I want to, I wonder if there's time to talk a little bit about how you play with surrealism and how you play with, um, again, that liminal space between what's real and what's not real, what's grief and what's beautiful um, and how, you know, how you, you choose to imp- implement that in your films and maybe who some of your inspiration and um, your influences are. Okay, you're on mute again. Yes, no, I'm here. Um- yeah, I think surrealism for me, I never like calculate. For example, when I made Submarine, I didn't think I want to make a genre film. Or when I use surrealism, it's not something that I calculate. It's like in architecture, which is my background, you know, form follows function. I think genre and like the film tools should follow the story and what the story needs. And in some projects that I had done, uh, whether it was, for example, on fashion films with Sandra Mansour, in which what triggered that idea was the idea of the subconscious and also um, uh, other projects I had done. In Submarine, that moment of surrealism is a moment that exists only because I really wanted to dive in the subjectivity of the character in a way that was so deep that you didn't know uh, if it was um, real or not. It's a moment in which you don't know if it's, it's a memory or if it's in her head or if it's wishful thinking. And the only way to do it for me and Joe, the DP, was to to create this this moment where we played with that. And what I love about surrealism, it's something really hard to achieve, and I've always been a big fan of it um, in literature. But what's great about playing with it is that it's just an access to your characters and to their subconscious because our present reality is one, and then there's the other reality that is inside our minds and that we're not in control of. And I like playing with that. In Costa Brava, we did one of these scenes for each character. So one scene of magical realism or one scene of hypersubjectivity for each character. And the one that's on screen now is the one of Tala. 
Yeah, it's it's really really effective, um, especially because the the premise um, is in in a you know if things were better in Lebanon, it, it is it would be a, a sort of a ludicrous pr pr uh, premise, but sadly it's like not surreal. It's not a it's not ludicrous. It's uh, it's grounded sadly in reality. So these scenes are really really effective in in you know communicating those those emotions okay my last question before we get to um some of the quick q a is what are some of the um enduring memories of filming i'm going to put some photos up from the behind the scenes what are some of the um sort of enduring memories of being on set working with the actors um when you sort of think about this now that it's so much later it's funny because being on set is, is such a, it's an experience that is hard to explain because you're in this alternate reality, you know, where everyone's emotions are heightened. We're all working for one objective. So the positive aspect of it is that it's creativity, it's creation and it's a force of nature. And that's why it's such a threat to people, creativity. That's the great aspect of it. The, the Of course, the fact that everyone is, is on the edge working for an objective with heavy deadlines and time constraints, it also brings out the worst in people. So in a way, it's very real. It's very magical and it's very real. And I think it's a human experience that challenges us intellectually and humanly. And we develop a lot of like human intelligence, emotional intelligence being on set. And for me, really, like I feel like a child on set. I'm just playing like... It's one of my favorite parts of the filmmaking process. Of course, I love writing because it's a moment where after you've been around so many people, you really want to be alone. And I love being alone. But then on set, I really love being around people. And it was very hard to shoot a film during a pandemic because I love touching my crew and hugging. And like, I'm very motherly. And so it's difficult when you're shooting in a time where the other human is a threat and you have to be masked. But really this crew, making this film during this time with this crew, it was so special and, and working with the actors and with the team, it, it, it was a mix of people that I've worked with all my life. So it felt like family, but also new people that came in from the international crew that just merged with us in a way that felt natural. It just felt like a family with all its flaws and its qualities. And of course, sometimes it was ugly, but, and sometimes it was not at all. And, yeah. and that's what's special. You're, you're, you know, you're directing a, a combination of folks. You're directing young characters. You're, uh, you're, you're directing young actors, first-time actors. In the case of the grandmother, um, you're directing Nadine Labake, who is a uh, a director in, in her own right, uh, obviously, and a combination of well-trained actors and you know novices. How do you approach that? And is it like totally intimidating since it's your first feature? Mm -hmm. When, when I went to film school, there's an acting teacher that kept repeating, there are no good or bad actors, only good or bad directors, <laughs> which you can argue against or for. But I try to like live by that so that I take that responsibility. And I love working with actors. It's one of my favorite things. And I think that um, I what I do is I adapt my directing tools to the person I'm working with. I don't impose... In, like some directors do like just one technique. Like for example, with Seana and Gianna, the twins, 
I tried to free them from the script and from rules. I even changed the way I filmed them. Sometimes I got rid of my very constructed shots and Joe and I were like, let's just follow them. I gave them games to play. I, I, they actually fell in love with Saleh. So I would catch their real reactions looking at their father who they were by this point in love with already. I tried to welcome accidents with them, just like try to trigger them to be themselves and catch it on camera. With uh, Nadia Sherbil, who's an actress, but in TV, not in film, and who's also as internal as the character, it was a lot of conversations and then very little words on set. With Nadine and Saleh, it was basically three friends talking and it was not a lot of rehearsals, just like giving them the stage and, and playing with emotional actions and uh, just developing that relationship by you know triggering a lot of time with them. With the, I think with each character, it was, it was a different process. And of course, they, they worked and memorized and all of that. But within this, I also gave them a lot of freedom. But for me, I can't, I like having structure to play within, you know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're running out of time because I can talk to you forever. So let's talk about <laughs> the quick Q&A. Um, we'll do this quickly and then we'll get a couple questions from the chat. So what are you watching these days? Um. I'm going back to films that I, I was um, really excited about when I was younger, but I had a big disconnect from just because of time. And it's going back to uh, Anna René and Agnès Varda and Romer. Uh, it's been a very long time I haven't, and because I spent time in Paris, I tried to connect with that. I also watched, I started watching uh, Normal People, the series, the TV show, which I only watched a few episodes, but I thought it was, such a great portrayal of first love and beginnings. And because I try to watch things that are related to some themes I'm exploring. I've been uh, 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 obsessing again about Georgia O'Keeffe, reading everything about her I can read, learning from how she perceived the world. Um, I've been watching, I watched again Donnie Darko because I was curious to know how I'd feel about it. I've just, I, I just watch a lot of different things and that excites me. I don't like, you know, I, I like watching a lot of different things and getting different emotions from different things. Okay, we're gonna do the next one, which is who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Vim Vendors or Jane Campion. Okay, we're gonna keep on going. Ah, yes, um, Georgia O'Keefe, can they be dead? Yeah, yeah, past or present. Leonard Cohen, Georgia O'Keefe. My uncle, I, I really regret not having spent time with him because he's such a, a fascinating character. This is, I, I just sorry, found this by him that they started releasing some of his vinyls. Yeah. And he's a man that, you know, one great thing about- I didn't my know this father, was your uncle. Yes. <laughs> and he's, one great thing about my father is that he speaks about dead people as if they were still present. And so he speaks about Walid with a smile and with humor. And Walid, who died very young at the age of 52, uh, left a big legacy thanks to his music and also his personality. And, and he's a person that I was obsessed with as a child, and I would have loved to spend more time with him and to just watch how he, his relationship to his work. Amazing. Okay. I'm going to read the questions um, and we have seven minutes. Let's try to see, go through as yes. many as we can. So the first question comes from Dylan. The scenes with Tala all have hints of adolescent sexuality. Do you intend to explore this theme more in depth in the future, in future projects? 
Absolutely. I think that's one theme that I started, you know, touching and and it's probably something that I want to take farther and farther in my next project in which I want to explore the relationship between female desire and trauma. And that's what has been cooking a lot in, in my mind. And I started with Tala and, and, and it's going to go farther because I think that uh, growing up in Lebanon, um, creates a very complex relationship to your sexuality that I'm I, I'm becoming aware of in retrospect and I'm interested in exploring that. Amazing. Okay, the next question comes from Joe. What was the driving force that made you capable of making a film during the most difficult time of our lives, knowing that making a film is very difficult in and of itself? Joe Saade? Joe, yeah. <laughs> I think Joe was my driving force. I think Joe was my main... Um, of course, the driving force was, you know, the story that you have inside your stomach, you want to tell it and, and it really, really drives you in a way that's, you know, it's like when you fall in love, you know, you don't understand where it comes from and how it's taking you, but it's like an arrow and a cible and a target. And I think that's what happened in Costa Brava. I said, I felt so driven, even though it seemed completely insane to make a film not just for us for all the film crews that made films during this time and i think it took me two years to real to collapse and to realize okay i didn't collapse then so now i can and i think in every project there's a person that gives you the strength and for me it was my cinematographer joe uh and because him and i became like the main partners that really supported each other and he was my main creative pillar and we just gave each other that energy and when one collapsed, the other uh, supported the other, etc. So I think on this project, Joe was the driving force that pushed my own driving energy. Um, okay, the next question comes from Noha. Um, I'd love to know how was the linguistic process in terms of writing the script in English or co-writing the script in English with Claire and then translate it into Arabic? I'm glad you asked this question, Noha. I wanted to talk about that process as well. What was it like working with Claire uh, Roque, I guess her name Clara, is? yeah, yeah. Uh, Clara, sorry, Clara. Okay, uh, Clara and I met at Columbia University. And the reason why we started working together was one, we felt like we were, we became friends very close and felt like we were, we, we were vibrating the same energy and we had stories in common that we, when I read her scripts, I really connected to the story she was telling and, and vice versa, especially when it came to family dynamics and those, those hidden pains that then define you later. And so writing with her in English was because it's our common language because she's from Spain and I'm from Lebanon. And then later what happened is that what I would do is we would write the script, but then I would write the dialogue in Arabic, but in English as well. And later when we um, went closer to the shoot, we we worked with Erze uh, Khudud and Abla Khudi to rework not just the descriptions, but also the dialogue. Because sometimes when you write something in, in English, then you have to really reinvent the whole way of formulating it so that it's closer to how we speak in, um, in Arabic. So it felt easy, but at the same time, it's, it was very important to write dialogue in Arabic from the start for me so that it doesn't feel like translated from another language. Uh, let me ask you a question. Before you wrote the dialogue, did you know who all the characters were in your head? Did you have a sense of 100% who they are? 
I started with characters before I got to the plot. These were characters that I had journaled about for a very long time. So I wrote the characters before I wrote the story. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the last question I want to ask is on behalf of Farah. Where can we watch this? Hi, Farah. <laughs> um, so we finished our festival tour and now the movie is starting to come out in, in theaters and cinemas. It, and it's coming out in France in, um, uh, in, on June 29, uh, in the US in August, etc. <laughs> and, oh, and it came out in Sweden. And, so, and then later, hopefully, at the end of the summer, you'll be able to maybe watch it online. We'll see. But now it's going to uh, come out in theaters, and then we'll see what happens later. France Fantastic. is the next stop. Oh, okay, in gonna... Barcelona on May 27th. Sorry. It's coming out in Barcelona on May 27th, in France on June 29th, and in, in the US in August. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you a final question. What are you working on now? Um, and what do you think uh, you're going to be working on? Kind of like if you think, fast forward 10 years, what do you think you are going to be working on in 10 years? Um, Sorry, what am I working on now and in 10 years? What are you working on in now? And then I'm curious if you were to imagine what, what things you might be unpacking in 10 years, uh, what do you think you're going to be working on in 10 years? I think after finishing the first feature and just processing this big feeling of grief and loss that comes with what's happening in Lebanon, I went into uh, an internal journey of trying to do a lot of introspection and take a little bit of a break from overworking. And, and I, when I got out of it, I went back to projects. And so generally what I'm working on is I'm developing my second feature and, and I'm in the development phase. And there's two ideas uh, of TV shows that I'm developing with two different uh, groups. And in parallel, sometimes what I do to stay creatively stimulated is I collaborate with designers and do, for example, fashion films or music videos. And what I like about these projects is that I have a creative freedom and it's a way to collaborate with another mind. And like I did with Elisab or Sandra Mansour or Tara and Tessa Sahi or Kinematic, the band, what this allows me to do or Dior in Paris, it allows me to basically um, have a creative collaboration and, and which brings out things in me that I wouldn't um, uh, be bringing out if it was just about my own fiction. So I'm, I'm, the, I'm in development phase for a bunch of things and sometimes I shoot and I'm in research mode. So I've been reading a lot, watching a lot of movies, going to, cool. you know, yeah. Cool. The last question, actually I lied. The last question is, please tell me you still have this hat. I don't know, but I asked my parents if that was a costume party day and they're like, no, I should ask them. But I know that this little like uh, toy I'm holding, I was so attached to it that one day my father told me that he left because he wanted to go travel elsewhere. And so I, I was heartbroken. Yeah. So that one, I don't know where he hid it, but that was my first heartbreak. Amazing. Well, Munya, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate, appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was so lovely. Next okay, time everyone. live. <laughs> Next time live, exactly. Um, okay, everyone, this is going to show up on our podcast and up on YouTube tomorrow. So if you know folks who wish they uh, were here, you can share it with them. 
And we'll see you all next week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mikey. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikda.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.